0: Good morning everybody, thank you for joining us here at Linworth and good morning to everybody with us online. Let's go ahead and stand and let's sing together this morning.
1: the high
0: kids you know they hear the songs on the radio or on the playlist in the car and they learn all the words you know and they may not say the words exactly right but they just parrot back what they hear so my kids were a little younger i was looking through songs it's like all right, what, what songs do i really want my kids to learn the lyrics of all right hmm how great is our god yes <laughs> uh, you know just such a simple declaration of just the awesomeness of God and it's very worshipful and I'm a worship I've been a worship leader for a long time and I, and I mean no disrespect to all the hundreds of songs that are out there but I I really believe there there are a few that just have a little bit of extra sprinkle of the Lord on them and I believe this is one of those songs yeah I just I just this is just so God ordained and so I just thought it'd be great if we sang it together this morning so let's sing
1: Spender our God, and oh, we'll see how great, how great is is our
0: God. Yes, God, this morning we declare that you're great, and we lift our voices together in praise and worship of a wonderful, awesome God. Lord, thank you for giving us voices to sing. Thank you for being worthy of all the praise we could ever give. We lift you up this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, kids, you can head back to Sunday school. Adults, uh, turn and say hello to someone next to you.
2: Good morning, everyone. Seems like there's this little thing when you come up here and make announcements that you're actually supposed to turn on the mic. So uh, I succeeded, and so we're gonna continue on here. Well, welcome and good morning. Uh, church, how you guys doing? Good, how about those of you online? I hope you're doing well. And you're sipping your hot chocolate or coffee or enjoying that. But uh, we're glad that you could join us this morning. And especially if this is your first time here at Lynn North, my name is Rich. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we just want to shout out to you. Glad that you're here with us this morning. And we want to invite you, especially if you are a visitor, to grab a Connect card. It should be right in front of you. And if you can begin filling that out with your information, we would love to be able to send you a thank you card. And then also... Uh, invite you to our welcome desk. We have a, a little gift for you that we'd like to give you, a nice little um, coffee mug. And just as a way of saying thank you for being here. And then you have an opportunity on that card, if there's anything, that information that you would like, you can go ahead and write there, write it on there, ask for questions if you have any prayer requests. And of course, course that is open to every one of us. If there's something going on in our lives, uh, we gather um, as the pastors and pray for those. And so we'd love for you to go ahead and let us know what's going on and so that we could indeed pray for you. All right, we're gonna go through just a few different announcements as we do each Sunday, and the first one here is that we're having a membership class. It's been a little bit of time since we've had one. It's gonna be on August 13th. We call it our fully alive membership class, but basically it's an opportunity if you feel like you've been coming here for a little bit, and you feel like this uh, is your church home and you'd like to become a member, we'd love for you to come to this class and we're gonna discuss know who we are what we believe the things that are going on here our vision um, and what our idea of church is and so um, we give you that opportunity by taking that class it doesn't mean that you will have to become a member but we want you to go ahead and come to this class if you can but we need you to write membership class on your connect card or call the um, office and let us know that you are going to be coming there and so uh, once again we'd love to see you there um, One special note on that class, however, there is uh, going to be an interpreter, Spanish interpreter. So it's really exciting. We're gonna have um, our Spanish service. Those that want to become a member will be there. And so there will be a translator or interpreter present. So it'll be a little bit different. You'll hear some interpretation going on while the class is going on. And the best thing of the whole thing is that there's lunch included. So there you go. All right, second up is Love Our City. This has been going on. It kicked off this past week. And um, there are still ways to serve. It's a part of us, if this is your first time, we've gathered with some churches around the area here to serve our city in different ways and love them. And so uh, the August 10th project is here at Linworth, all right? And um, our personally, our life group is signing up to uh, serve that day. And it's, we're going to be doing some gardening and some picking up trash and weeding and whatever else they want us to do at a couple of the local schools and maybe some areas in the neighborhoods. And so that's going to be happening. You still have time to sign up if you want. You just go to the website, loveourcitycolumbus.com. It's a very simple process, and then you'll get information about it. A couple of things to note here. Tonight is the vision night. Um, And so the churches will be gathering and uh, for uh, a time together to... Uh, think about the city, to talk about it, uh, to share a vision for this area of Columbus. There'll be prayer walks, you'll be pairing up with people and walking through the neighborhoods and schools praying, there'll be some worship, and there will be ice cream, so there you go. That's from 6 to 8.30, and that's at Linworth Baptist, and that's tonight, and uh, also I know that um, at least Pastor Chris told me that he's gonna be there tonight, so hopefully you can join us, and it'll be a great time. All right, last one is Discover Life, and that also is August 10th. So before I go any further, um, that is really our priority, this outreach of um, Discover Life. This is the last week of it, so we don't want you skipping out on Discover Life if you're going to invite a friend or go to that in order to do the Serve Your City. So I just wanted to note that. But it's our final night for Discover Life. It's not too late to bring a friend. It's an outreach. It's uh, where uh, people who have questions about Jesus, about... um, Faith, um, they can come to this. There'll be a, uh, there's video, a dinner, discussion, and a raffle, excuse me, a raffle at the end of it. But it's such an easy way to bring somebody who is investigating uh, Jesus. And so we uh, invite you to invite a friend and come for that final night. So um, I think that's all I have here. Nick, you're gonna kick us off on a new series? I think you guys are going to enjoy this
3: well hey good morning everyone it's good to see you here this morning Here, uh, go going and hand me those got some props this morning um, had to borrow that one and uh, I had that one but these will come into play here a little later on uh, yeah as Pastor Rich just said we're kicking off a new series today we're really excited about it's called Wait. that's in the Bible and uh, in this series we're gonna be looking at some of the more difficult and challenging passages that we find in the scriptures. Now, as a kind of uh, heads up, uh, this series is gonna be quite a bit different from what we normally do on a Sunday morning. You see, if you're new or if you're visiting with us, what we uh, typically do on a Sunday morning is we open the Bible and we like to preach through books of the Bible, kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, it's what some have referred to as expository preaching, and, and we love that and are completely committed to that as a church. In fact, uh, right after this series, we're gonna teach through the book of Ephesians. But even with that said, there are times that, that, that it's both necessary and helpful to do a more topical series. And even sometimes specifically to do an apologetic type series, where we take some time to address and talk through some of those tough questions that are being raised about the Christian worldview. And one crucial aspect of our worldview that has come under scrutiny recently is the Bible itself. And so because of that, and because of the fact that the Bible is the foundation for what we believe about God and about reality, um, we as pastors felt like it would be good to spend some time talking through some of those challenges. In fact, the the genesis or the inspiration for this series came about through uh, a couple of us staff pastors reading through a book this summer uh, by a guy named Dan Kimball called How Not to Read the Bible. And it's been a really good book. It's been helpful. Uh, We'll definitely be leaning into it during this series. Um, In fact, the basic framework and outline for the series comes directly from the book. Um, now, like with most books, we wouldn't agree with every single word that's in it. And, and yeah, I feel like you have to make that qualifier nowadays because then someone's going to read and they're going to be like, well, wait a second. But, but no, yeah, we, of course, there's probably things we would phrase differently. But in general, we found the book to be pretty helpful and, and the arguments in it to be solid. And so in terms of this first message here and kicking off the series, what I want to try to do today is to lay out for us the basic issue or the basic problem that our our broader culture is raising when it comes to the scriptures. But before we dive into this, let me just open our time with a word of prayer and invite uh, the Holy Spirit to come and to lead and to guide us into truth. And so Father, we do turn to you now. We thank you for how you've already met us this morning. God, we thank you for your presence. Thank you that you are here. And so Father, we just pray that we could uh, lean into you Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know. And so we thank you for this time together in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have a very simple outline this morning. I'm just going to be trying to answer three questions. Uh, Number one, what is the problem with the Bible? Number two, is it a fair objection? And then number three, how, how do we respond? How should we respond to this? And so starting with the first question here, what is the basic problem or issue that our secular culture has with the Bible? Well, I think there are a number of ways uh, that we could talk about this or answer this question. But I think one of the main issues is that for centuries in the West, the Bible held a place of honor and respect within our broader culture. Now in saying that, that doesn't mean that everyone loved the Bible and it certainly doesn't mean that everyone obeyed it. But what it does mean is that in general, in our society, it was assumed that the Bible was a positive influence for good. However, though, in recent years, particularly during this internet age that we are living in uh, with the rise of social media, It has become fairly common to see memes or tweets or uh, even TikTok videos uh, or something else like that that are uh, trying to make the Bible seem not only uh, outdated or irrelevant, but actually they're trying to make the Bible seem either nonsensical or worse, dangerous. For example, I, I don't know if you realize this, but according to a couple memes I saw recently, did you know that unicorns are mentioned in the Bible? Now, maybe you're like me and you're thinking, well, wait a second, I've read through the Bible multiple times. I've never seen the word unicorn mentioned. Well, I I hate to break it to you, but unicorns are in fact mentioned in the Bible. In fact, I think this one meme captured it pretty well. It says unicorns are mentioned nine times in the Bible, cats are mentioned zero times, and that's all you need to know about the Bible. That might be all you need to know about cats, but we'll, you know, we'll, we'll leave that alone. Now, I think you gotta hand it to whoever created this, right? They're, they're definitely being creative. It's, it's funny, it's catchy. Um, here's another one, though. It's a, a unicorn crossing sign. And then it says, because the Bible tells me so. And then it has, you can't see it, but it has listed the various scripture references that mention unicorns. Now, we'll, later on in the message, I'm gonna address this particular issue and claim about unicorns. But for now, let's, let's keep talking about some of the other issues. Another popular meme you might run across is something like this. Now, uh, go ahead and go to the next one here. Now, I know we have some football fans in here, but did you know that according to this meme, Christians are not allowed to play football? You see, in Leviticus 11.8, it talks about how uh, pigs are unclean and that you can't even touch uh, their carcass. Um, And since footballs are called pigskin, no playing football. Um, Here are another couple other ones which attempt to use the Bible to Uh, discredit it Uh, here's one about women Uh, it says hush women and then it quotes quotes first corinthians 14. Um, here's another one this is one about king david it says uh, david wanted to marry king saul's daughter michael he demanded david bring him 100 foreskins to pay for her david killed 200 men and brought saul 200 of their foreskins instead and then the caption says yes this is in the bible other memes that I've seen recently quote verses trying to show that the Bible endorses uh, things like slavery. Um, there's ones that talk about how Christians are hypocrites because we wear clothing that has two different kinds of fabric in it, you know? Like a who doesn't love a good cotton polyester blend shirt? Um, there's ones that talk about not being allowed to have tattoos or shaving your sideburns or your beard and then and on and on we could go, right? And what each of these memes are trying to do is they're trying to discredit the Bible by using the Bible itself. Uh, Dan Kimball, in this book I mentioned, he said this, in meme after meme, joke after joke, we see a Bible verse or verses quoted to make the same point. The Bible is bizarre and strange, even evil and harmful, and to discredit anyone who takes the Bible seriously. And not only that, but I think that many of these memes, what they're also trying to do is they're insinuating that Christians don't actually know their Bibles, right? Like the thought is, is that if Christians actually knew what was in the Bible, then clearly they wouldn't be able to believe or to accept it, what it says. In fact, a comedian and magician, which I think is being generous to use that title, um, Penn Jillette, he said this, He said, if you read the Bible cover to cover, I believe you will emerge from it as an atheist. You can read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, you can read God Is Not Great by Hitchens, but the Bible itself will turn you atheist faster than anything. And unfortunately, I think the reality is, is that there are a lot of Christians who don't actually know their Bibles, particularly the Old Testament. And so when they do come across a meme like this, or, or maybe they uh, are talking with a non-Christian friend who brings some of this stuff up, what happens is, is they end up being completely caught off guard, right? Like they, they're just like, wait, wait a second, what? That's in the Bible? And, and they don't know what to say. You might feel embarrassed. You might feel stupid. And in the end, it's going to leave you feeling disillusioned. Again, like our series title indicates, they they just feel like, wait a second, the Bible actually says that? And again, unfortunately for some, instead of talking to a pastor or talking to a a parent or, or someone else who loves them, instead what they do is they go back online looking for answers. But instead of finding helpful, truthful answers, they find more memes and more arguments that are out to discredit the Bible. And so as a result, this is why we get some people who are deconstructing their faith and and who are walking away from the Christian faith. And so again, this, I, I believe, is really a major problem. And it's a major issue that's taking place both inside and outside the church. And so let's go to that second question in our outline, and that is this. Is it a fair objection? In other words, is the Bible really that bad? Is it really that confusing and nonsensical and dangerous? Well, I think on the one end, if, we, if we're being fair here, I think there is a sense in which the answer is somewhat of a yes, right? Like there are things in the Bible which are at first difficult to understand. For example, this week, my uh, oldest son got a Bible for graduating from our Cross Crew children's ministry. And uh, he told me that he was going to start reading in Genesis and go all the way through the Bible. And, you know, on the one hand, I was really pleased and excited uh, that he had this strong desire to get into the Word and and on his own and, and to begin reading it. But at the same time, I was thinking, you know, he's going to get real lost and real confused if he tries to read through the Old Testament without some help and some explanation. And so instead I was like, hey, buddy, like that's awesome that you're excited about reading uh, your Bible, uh, but you know, like how about we start in something like a little easier, like Matthew, right? Like let's skip forward a little bit and and we'll begin in the New Testament. Now I didn't say that to him because I devalue the Old Testament or because I think that the Old Testament is wrong or something else like that. No, in fact, I personally love the Old Testament and read through it regularly. But again, if we're being fair to our non-Christian skeptic friends, there are parts of the Old Testament, and even some in the New, which are very difficult to understand and to accept. I mean, look, The reality is this, you turn uh, to page two in your Bible and there's already a talking snake, there's some magical trees. Um, You turn a couple more pages, there's a guy building a really, really big boat and he gets on it with every kind of animal. And then, you know, there's a flood and it kills everyone and everything. Um, That same guy, just a page later, uh, ends up getting drunk and and naked in his tent and that creates a bunch of problems. And so uh, you're only, at that point, you're only like five or six pages in. And that's nothing to say about some of the more difficult and hard to understand laws that you come across in places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, not only that, I, one thing I love about the Bible is that the Bible itself admits that there are parts in it that are hard to understand, right? Like uh, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 said this about Paul's writings. I love this. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, and as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now catch this. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so even poor Peter's like, yep, you know what? I mean, I know I'm just a simple fisherman and Paul's like super deep with theology. And and look, yeah, there's some things he writes that are hard to understand. And so again, in looking at this question here, is this a fair objection? I think there's a sense in which the answer is somewhat of a yes. However, though, at the same time, I would say the answer to this question is no. No, this is not a fair objection. And the reason I say that is for a couple of reasons. For one, uh, the, the fact just that many of these memes are in objections that are being raised, they're intentionally misleading. For example, I told you we'd come back to the unicorn example. Um, it is true that unicorns are mentioned nine times in the Bible in the Old Testament. However, uh, most likely, if if you take the Bible that's in your hand and go back to the concordance or if you search the Bible that's on your phone, you're not going to find the word unicorn in it. And the reason for that is because it was only the King James Version which used the word unicorn. And maybe you don't realize this, but the King James was translated in the year 1611 from the original languages into English. And the Hebrew word that they translated as unicorn was the Hebrew word re'im. And it most likely referred to an animal that is now extinct. But, but the animal, what they knew about it is that it contained a, a single or a prominent horn. And so think of something maybe like a rhino. And so again, in 1611, when the King James was translated, they picked the English word unicorn, which at the time simply meant one horn. In other words, when they picked the word unicorn, they in no way chose it to represent some mythical, magical creature, uh, which looks like a horse that has a horn and likes to fly and for whatever reason likes rainbows, (laughs) right? Hey, Huts, catch, buddy. Um, That idea, that concept wasn't even a thing in 1611. No, they picked that word simply because it was an animal with a single or a prominent horn. Um, another example of being intentionally misleading is the football meme. Not only does this meme take the verse out of context, but the reality is uh, most footballs aren't even made of pigskin, or uh, pig Or uh, footballs are not made of pigskin, and they never were. Most footballs today are made of either cowhide leather or some sort of synthetic material like rubber. Uh, the reason that we have come to call football pigskin is because a really, really long time ago, the inside of the football did contain a pig bladder. But even still, that misses the point and clearly memes like this are intentionally deceptive. And so catch that one too. Um, you see, the point is, is that with these, they're not actually trying to prove something or to have a valid argument or to even raise a genuine concern or question. No, things like this are simply made to be clickbait in order to get people to mock the Bible. Now, some of the other memes are perhaps less intentionally misleading, but even still, I believe they do misrepresent the Bible because they quote verses out of context. You see, when you pull something out of its context, you can make it seem like however you want. You can make something seem better, or as what we see all the time with political ads, you can make someone seem a whole lot worse context and original meaning are everything Um, for example let me show you a short video here that i think will will illustrate this point about how easy it is to mislead someone based on context Smith, what we just saw there is essentially what our broader culture is trying to do with the Bible. They're trying to turn this wonderful, life-giving book into a kind of horror show, a scary movie by pulling verses and stories out of their context. Um, Another thing I would say that makes this objection unfair or less fair is the fact that we have to remember modern Western society likes to think that they have arrived at their beliefs and values all on their own. But that's simply not true, that's not the case. You see, one of the things that's somewhat ironic about all of this is that the very people who are looking at the Bible and who are judging it morally are the very ones who themselves have unknowingly been profoundly shaped and influenced by it. One famous author uh, who actually is very uh, refreshingly honest has basically made this very point, Uh, Tom Holland, Uh, Again, the atheist author, not the guy who played Spider-Man. Don't get confused. If you look it up, you'll be like, what? Um, He said this about the Bible. He said, compacted into this very, very small amount of writing was almost everything that explains the modern world and the way the West has then moved on to shape concepts like international law, concepts of human rights, all all these kinds of things. Ultimately, they don't go back to Greek philosophers. They don't go back to Roman imperialism. They go back to Paul, his letters. I think along with the four gospels are the most influential, the most impactful, the most revolutionary writings that have emerged from the ancient world. Um, One reviewer of this book by Holland said this. He said, it's hard to overestimate the importance of Holland's book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. The subtitle tells you the basic thesis. He makes a readable and extraordinarily well-documented case that the central values and priorities of modern Western secular culture have actually come from Christianity. And even now when most of the educated classes have abandoned Christianity and when religion is in sharp decline among the populace, Christianity has such an enduring pervasive influence that we cannot condemn the church for its failures without invoking Christian teaching and belief to do so. Now, maybe you had a hard time tracking with that, but again, the basic point here is this, that it's ironic that those in our culture who are looking at the Bible and who are condemning it morally are the very ones who themselves have been deeply and profoundly shaped by the biblical view of morality and ethics. In other words, if it wasn't for the Bible and for Christianity, these uh, people today would would never have come to the conclusion or these moral uh, conclusions on their own. I mean, do you actually think that if uh, the uh, ancient Romans or the ancient Greeks, or even some of the ancient Asian cultures would have uh, persisted or who would have influenced the world the way that the Christian faith has, that these objections would be being raised today? I I personally am not persuaded that that would be the case. And so again, is our culture's critique of the Bible fair? Well, again, I think if we're being fair, the answer to that is, well, yes, in some ways, but definitely no in others. Let's keep going here in our outline. Let's go to that third question, and that's this. How do we respond? In other words, how should we, what should we do with all of this? Well, in some ways, uh, let me just be upfront with you. Uh, this, the rest of this series is gonna be talking through many of these objections. I mean, we're gonna talk through the strange Old Testament laws. We're gonna address violence in the Bible. We're gonna look at, is the Bible anti-science or is it anti-women? But I think before we can get into some of those things, there are a couple principles or a couple of tools which will really help you and I understand what the Bible is, how it works, and how we should approach it. In other words, let me give you now five principles which I believe will help you and I read and approach the Bible in a way that'll be most helpful. Now, four of the five of these come from Dan Kimball's book that I mentioned earlier. Uh, one of them comes from a Bible scholar, uh, a guy by the name of Michael Bird. And so in terms of giving credit for these, that's where they come from. And so the, the first principle that I want to look at is this. The Bible is a library, not a book. See, I know most of us walked in here today with a single bound version of this thing that we call the Bible. But actually, even though it's bound in one volume, the Bible is far from a single book. In fact, the word Bible itself comes from the Greek word biblia, which means books. In our Protestant Bibles, there are over 60, they're not over, there are 66 different books and with that, they, they contain multiple different genres of books in those 66. And, and one thing that even makes it tricky is that some books uh, change genres or they have multiple genres within them. And so you have to be aware of that. Um, you know, on this point of thinking about the, the Bible as a library, not a book, uh, my family and I, we love libraries like we uh, we're kind of nerdy in that sense. Um, uh, each of my kids have their own library card, including our two six-year-olds, and they got them on a lanyard and they love walking into the library and being able to check out their own books. Um, not only that, sometimes we'll hit two libraries in one day. Like, how weird is that? Like, like we're, we're really into them, right? But maybe for you, it's been a long time since you've been in one, but maybe even so, try to put on your thinking caps or your imagination and, and, and picture what a, a library is like. You know, you walk in, you might see someone sitting at a desk and, and they're a friendly person there to help you. You might even see some computers where you can check your books out. But, but if you kept walking through that library, eventually what you're going to see is different sets of bookshelves. And often those bookshelves are, are grouped together or at the very least they're labeled based on what type of genre uh, of books are on them. And so you might have a section with uh, history books, or you might have a section with nothing but biographies or memoirs. Um, There'll be a section that I've never been to, but I hear it's in there that has like poetry and things like that on it. Uh, There's cookbooks, there's sports, there's all kinds of different types of books. And and usually there's a whole section dedicated to just fiction, and even that is usually broken down into different categories, mysteries or sci-fi or whatever. In the same way, except for the fiction part or the cookbook part, I get. although maybe, um, in the same way, when we open our Bibles, we are stepping into not a single book, but a library of books. Now, amazingly, this library of books that we call the Bible, it is telling a unified story, but even still, there are different genres of books in it, and you and I have to understand that if we want to interpret it correctly. Um, The Bible Project, some of the guys there, uh, they put it like this. They said, while the Bible is one unified story, it cannot all be read in the same way. Um, Dan Kimball, in his book, he said this, this is our Bible, a library of books written in many different genres and at many different times in history. All of this strongly impacts how we read and interpret individual Bible verses. Much depends on what book we are reading. For example, law books are read and are interpreted quite differently from a poetry book. You see, whether you realize it or not, as I've already pointed out, the Bible contains quite a few different types of genres. Now, there are multiple ways that you could talk about that or break that down. Um, The Bible Project guys say it like this. They say, the Bible can be broken down into several categories of writings. Approximately 43% of the Bible is made up of narrative and from historical narrative to parables. Roughly 33% of the Bible is poetry, including songs, reflective poetry, and the passionate, politically resistant poetry of the prophets. The remaining 24% of the Bible is prose discourse, including laws, sermons, letters, and even one essay. You've probably heard people break down the genres like this. There's law books, history books, there's, uh, uh, you know, historical narrative, poetry, biography, prophetic books, letters, uh, apocalyptic literature, etc. And again, as Dan Kimball pointed out, each of those genres matter when it comes to interpreting a verse or passage correctly. Not only that, but the Bible is also we have to keep this in mind. The Bible is broken down into two main parts. We we call them testaments the Old and the New Testament. Um, Our good friend and Bible teacher, Corey Bacher, likes to call them First and Second Testament. But the thing that's important to know about the word Testament is that it means covenant. And a covenant is an agreement between two parties. Now, the reason that's important is because understanding that makes a huge difference in how you interpret scripture. And so when it comes to the Bible, not only are there different genres or different types of literature, but there are also two distinct testaments covenants. Um, Some other things that are just helpful to know about the Bible is this, that it was written by 40 different authors, Um, although we believe and are persuaded that that process was guided and and inspired by one divine author, the Holy Spirit. Um, It was written over 1,500 years, spanning from about 1,400 B.C. in the days of Moses to around 100 A.D. with the time of the Apostle John. It was written on three different continents. It contains three different languages, Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic and Greek in the New Testament. And so again, all of that stuff is really important to keep in mind if we want to know what the Bible is and how you and I are to approach it. It's a library, not a book. Uh, The next principle I wanna share with you is this. And some of you may struggle with this idea, but, but the reality is, is the Bible was written for us But it was not written to us. You see, in 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, again, what we see with that is that the Bible really is for us. It can help us, it can shape the way that we can think, it can teach us, but, but most importantly, it teaches us about Jesus and what he has done for us. But even with that said, we have to keep in mind the Bible was not written to you and me. Uh, for example, those words in 2 Timothy were written to an actual man living in the first century named Timothy. And not only that, but they weren't even written in English, they were written in a language that most of us uh, do not know or cannot speak. Um, on this point, New Testament scholar Michael Bird put it like this He said, Whether you are a second century Christian in Rome, a fifth century Arab Christian in the city of uh, Tikrit, or a 21st century believer in Zimbabwe, the Bible is God's word for you, for them, and for us today. The Bible is for us yesterday, today, and until the end of the age. However, Even though the Bible is for us, it was not written to us, nor was it written about us. When we read the Bible, we are entering into a historically and culturally distant world, and we must mind the gap, as they say on the London tube. That's the London subway. In the rush to make the Bible instantaneously relevant, we can inadvertently misuse it by not recognizing the specific situation of the authors and lazily pick up something that seems handy to us on a first read. There is a real danger that we become overly familiar with the Bible in the sense that we read our own experience into it. We have to remember that the biblical world was rather unlike our place and time see, when we pick up our Bibles, not only are we walking into a library of books, but we are also stepping into a kind of time capsule. Again, when we open the Bible and begin reading, we are reading things that were written to ancient cultures that are thousands of years ago, whose language and culture was very different from ours today in 21st century America. And because of that, there's just gonna naturally be things that are hard for us to understand. There are gonna be customs and, and rituals that seem very strange to us. Not only that, but another factor is that sometimes there are idioms in the Bible which make no sense to us, but would have made perfect sense to the original audience. I think we also have to keep in mind that words and phrases can change meaning over time. I mean, we see this happen in, with our own language and in our own culture. Uh, for example, my two oldest kids love uh, listening to audiobooks, uh, which is probably why we're always at the library. And uh, because of that, over the years, they've listened to a lot of really, really great books, including a lot of, uh, of the classics. And so a couple months ago, uh, one of my kids used either uh, the word gay or the word queer in a sentence, but in its classical understanding of the word. And I remember feeling somewhat thrown off by that and feeling like I needed to correct them, but then I realized that they had no idea what that, that that word had changed meaning over time and it means something very different in our society today. Right, like in their minds, they're thinking, I mean, I hear C.S. Lewis use that word all the time. Like, what, you know, that's what it means, right? And the thing that's crazy about that, like you just take those couple examples, words can change meaning very quickly. I mean, both of those words, I think, are examples of that. Um, Another issue that I think factors into this is original or authorial intent. Um, In this book we've talked about, Dan Kimball gives an excellent example of this with the song Puff the Magic Dragon. Now how many of you know Puff the Magic Dragon, right? All right, uh, most of you, I guess. if you're unfamiliar with it, basically, uh, it's kind of a cheesy, folky kid song that came out in 1963 by Peter, Paul and Mary. And that's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> but what happened is they released the song. And then shortly after that, society began to shift dramatically. Right, Like, like the 1960s are pretty similar to, to what we're living through today. Like things are changing quickly. But at that time, the countercultural revolution was taking place mostly around young people and unfortunately included doing a lot of drugs. And so at some point, people started to talk about the fact that Puff the Magic Dragon was about smoking pot. Um, Even Newsweek Magazine did a cover story where they talked about how covert drug messages were being placed into songs. Well, this rumor went on for a while and eventually the writers of the song got so fed up and angry about this that they finally made a statement. In fact, one of the co writers said this about the song. He said, Puff is about the loss of innocence and having to face an adult world. It's surely not about drugs. I find the fact that people would in- interpret it as a drug song annoying. It would be insidious to propagandize about drugs in a song for little kids. You see, the point of the illustration is that original or authorial intent really does matter. It matters when you're talking about the meaning of songs, and it certainly matters when you're talking about the Bible. You see, we can make the Bible say what either we do or don't want it to say, but if we wanna understand what it really means, we need to try our best to get after that original or that authorial intent and understand it in its context. Context. Again, Michael Bird said this, He said, to be honest, the Bible is very hard to understand in places, not because it's a book of mystery, magic, or mayhem, rather because it contains a history distant from our own. It was originally written to ancient audiences in particular contexts, and it was written for us, but not to us. If we are to grasp the Bible, what it means to its original audience and what it means for us today, then we must traverse some historical chasms and learn to interpret ancient cultures as much as our own culture. Understanding the Bible is rewarding, but it entails work, hard work. Another way uh, understanding I think this principle impact or not understanding this principle can impact us negatively is that I think, you know, one thing we got to be careful of is that it's pretty common for us as believers to, uh, to claim verses or promises for ourselves when in actuality those promises were not made to us. And so what happens is you'll have a believer, they'll claim a particular promise from the Bible for their own life, and then when that doesn't happen or doesn't come to pass, they end up feeling disillusioned by that. And yet the problem isn't that God has let them down, the problem is that they wrongly applied a promise that God never made to them. Which actually, this ties us into the next principle, which is this, never read a Bible verse. Now, obviously, that's uh, an exaggeration, right? I mean, even in this message, I've read a verse or two without giving the, the broader or the, the bigger context of the passage. But even still, this, this uh, point, uh, this exaggeration is trying to make an important point. You see, when we open the Bible and read a verse, uh, if we want to understand what that verse is saying, then we need to understand the context in which the verse is found. And so when we say never read a Bible verse, what we're getting at is that it would be better if you could read a a paragraph. And better than just reading a paragraph would be to read an entire chapter. And better than reading an entire chapter would be to read a a whole book. And even better than reading a whole book would would be to know how that specific book and what it says, how that fits into the overall storyline of the Bible. You see, context really does matter when it comes to interpretation. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I uh, got into this habit of reading to our kids before bed. And so uh, the very first series we went through was the Chronicles of Narnia. And so we would take turns uh, reading uh, to them before bed. We kind of just sit in the hallway and read between the two bedrooms. And, and honestly, my wife ends up reading more than I do. And so what would happen is that when it was my turn to read, I would sit down and, and begin reading. But because I had missed the previous couple nights, I had no idea what was going on. And so I'd have to ask uh, one of the kids to fill me in on the story. Now that's bad enough, but let's say you have never read the Narnia series before. This is a one volume uh, book of it that has all seven books in it. And let's just say I I grab this volume and I I flip it open kind of randomly and I read this sentence to you. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence and masters called him Scrub. I can tell you how his friends spoke of him for he had none. All right, let's say that's all I I read to you and you've never heard anything about Narnia. You don't even know, like, what's Narnia? What does that mean? So from reading that one sentence, how much of that chapter are you gonna understand? Let alone how much of that particular book are you gonna understand? Let alone how much of the entire series, right? My guess would be not very much because context matters. You see, I said earlier that the Bible is a library, not a book. We also said that there's a sense in which it's also kind of like a time capsule and that it was written a long time ago in a different language and in a different culture. But the other thing that's important to know about the Bible is that it has one main storyline and it also has a timeline with it. And so again, when you pick out a verse and begin reading it, you need to know how does this verse fit in the overall storyline in the Bible and where is it at on the timeline. Right? Like, I just read to you that sentence about Eustace, and you need to know, if you want to understand it, how does that fit in with the storyline of Narnia? Um, not only that, you need to know where is it at on the timeline. For example, from reading that, is Eustace a good guy or a bad guy? Well, he doesn't sound like a very good guy, but if you've read the entire series, you know that actually Eustace becomes a main character who's really important to the story. Um, Let me show you a picture of a timeline. Uh, You're probably not gonna be able to read it, and I apologize for that. Um, But basically, what this timeline is doing is it takes us from Genesis to Revelation. And in it, uh, it's broken down into six different acts. In act one, we see that God creates. Act two, humans rebel. Act three, redemption is initiated. And then what you see is there's an interlude, and that is representing uh, the interlude between the Old and the New Testament. And then we have act four, which is redemption provided, act five, mission to all nations. And then finally, at the very end, we have act six, which is redemption completed. Now, I don't know what you think about that breakdown, but I think it's pretty helpful and it's important to, to realize this, that the Bible contains a timeline. And the point of that is to realize that whatever particular verse you're reading, you need to understand where it falls on the timeline if you wanna understand it. You see, we'll get into this more next week when we talk through some of those strange Old Testament laws and we try to figure out, you know, which ones are still binding on us today and, and which ones are not. And one thing that makes a big difference is where does that verse fall on the timeline and did one of these major acts Or one of these major moments in history change anything about how you and I are to understand this verse. And so again, I think this is a really helpful principle. Never read a Bible verse. Um, The fourth principle I want to share with you is this. I think you and I have to keep in mind the Bible deals with harsh realities, not ideal situations. This is a point that I stumbled across in that book by Michael Bird. Um, the book's called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. And in this section of the book, Bird does such a good job talking through this thought that, you know, you and I have an idea of what we think the world should look like, but then there is the reality of what the world actually is. And that's true for us today, and that was certainly true thousands and thousands of years ago. And so let me read a quote to you from the book that I think will help us understand this principle. It's a, it's a little bit of a longer quote, but try to hang in there with me so that you can capture it. The Bible deals with the world as it is in its cruelty and moral chaos, a world with intertribal warfare, marauders, judges who take bribes, famine, foreign empires, pagan religions, slavery, curses, infanticide, exploitation, and patriarchy. Thankfully, God spoke his word into the context of the ancient Near East and into the Greco-Roman Mediterranean. It was a gracious word that dealt with the harsh realities of human existence, and it alleviated the misery of many. Yet, even as the divine word made things better, it did not, it did not always make things immediately perfect." The Bible speaks to a world that is messed up and God's decrees for that world do not clean up every mess instantaneously. God's commands to the Israelites about war, slaves, women, and justice made things incrementally better than they were, but not exactly perfect if judged by the standards of the New Testament or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Let me put it like this. In God's ideal world, we beat swords into plowshares, but in the cutthroat world of Canaan, a millennium before Christ, God's instructions told them what they had to do to survive if they went to war with the Ammonites, how they were to treat the survivors, how they were to make a treaty with a foreign people, how they were to stop foreign religions and cultures from taking over their own, how they were to treat someone who committed murder, etc a lot of what we find in the bible especially in the old testament is not ideal at least not ideal when judged from the perspective of the new testament it was somewhere between an emergency survival program and an attempt to ameliorate a terrible and traumatic situation the old testament conveys the ruthless realism of god's people trying to survive in an ancient world and dealing with a world that had a particular view of masculinity kinship moral duties and social order. See, I think the thing that you and I are are quick to forget is that God is very much not like us. God is able to be extremely patient. He's able to uh, take the long game when it comes to things. You see, we want utopia now and we want it on our own terms. But God in his divine wisdom and providence has ordered the world and humanity uh, and redemptive history to play out the way that he has. As we saw earlier on the timeline, God did in fact initiate a rescue plan to rescue this chaotic and messed up world. And we see that. I mean, really you can go all the way back to Genesis 3 to to see a glimmer of that. But but starting in Genesis 12, you see God choose and initiate this with Abraham. And then you go all the way through uh, the nation of Israel and eventually in God's perfect timing, as it talks about in Galatians 4, 4, God sent his son. And his son was, was the, the, the plan of redemption. It was what the point of redemption and where it was heading. And what we see is that when Jesus came, he brought the kingdom with him. And as part of bringing the kingdom to this earth, Jesus preached a, a new kingdom ethic of how you and I are to love and to treat one another. And we see that in places like the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Great Commandment. We also see that Christ went to the cross and he died in order to deal with the very thing that causes our world to be messed up, this thing called sin. And then he rose again and he ascended into heaven and and then after that he sent his Holy Spirit to us, to the church so that we would have wisdom and power to spread this kingdom and to spread the kingdom values to our world. And we know that one day, that the world will be a place that is ideal and is perfect, where injustice doesn't exist, where racism is over, where sexual immorality is done away with, but unfortunately, we are not there yet. And so when it comes to understanding some of these Old Testament passages that are hard for us to swallow, I think you and I have to keep this in mind. The Bible is realistic about humanity and it's realistic about the world you and I live in. And it set, God set a course a long time ago to begin able, uh, to bring some uh, correction to that and to begin to bring some hope in how you and I are to treat each other, but it did not happen instantaneously. It's taken time and we are still, even today, not there yet. The last principle I wanna share with you this morning is this, and this is the most important one. All of the Bible points to Jesus, You see, I said earlier that the Bible was written over 1,500 years ago by 40 different authors. But even with that said, one of the things that's so amazing is, the, is that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus in multiple places in the gospels made this very point. For example, in John 5, 39, Jesus was having a heated discussion with some of the religious leaders of the day. And they were kind of going back and forth. And Jesus finally told them this in verse 39. He said, look, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Um, Later on, uh, after his resurrection, Jesus is uh, walking and and he ends up catching up with some disciples. Uh, It's on the road to Emmaus. And uh, it's, a, it's such a fascinating passages, uh, passage of scripture. Um, for some reason, these disciples were kept from recognizing Jesus. And, and so Jesus kind of catches up to them and he's like, so what are you guys talking about? And, 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 and what are these things you're, you're talking about? And, and they're like, don't you know about all the things that just took place in Jerusalem? And, and in verse 19, Jesus says, what things? And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had, they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, there are some things inside, uh, there's some of those inside of evangelicalism who are saying maybe we should just ditch, or as Andy Stanley has said, maybe we should just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. But the problem that I and the rest of our pastors have with that is, is for one, Second Timothy 3, which we looked at earlier, says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Um, The other problem that we have with that in terms of unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament is is because as Jesus just said, the the Old Testament scriptures point to Him. They are about Him. And yes, sometimes we see that in really obvious ways like Isaiah 53 or uh, the Passover story or things like that. Uh, Other times it's a little more subtle, It's uh, it's more veiled. But either way, the Bible is about Jesus. He is the climax of the story. He is the center. He is the point. And when people get stuck on difficult parts of the Bible or or take verses out of context, but they miss Jesus in the process, that is a tragic thing. It'd be like going to see Niagara Falls, but then missing the falls because you're too busy playing with your broken zipper on your jacket, right? Like that would be tragic, like, forget your jacket. Look at the falls, right? And that's just what I wanna say to someone who's hung up. And and that's in no way to to try to pretend like there are not difficult things or that struggling with doubts is not real. But I just wanna plead with someone like don't, I mean, we can talk through that. There are good answers to those questions. But please, please do not miss Jesus in the process. The Bible is about Jesus. Jesus Christ is beautiful. He is compelling. And if we want to know him, we have to read this book, this this books, I should say, which speak of him. See, the Bible is difficult at times to understand, but it is worth it. It is worth it to do the hard work uh, to understand it, and it is worth it to love it and to to give our lives to, to knowing it. And so as we close here, I just want to turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper. Right, like this whole thing's about Jesus, right? Like that's the whole reason we came this morning. You didn't come to be entertained. You didn't come to see your friends. You came because of Jesus Christ and the fact uh, that he has impacted your life. And so as we come to the table this morning, I just want us to turn our attention and our affections to him. You see, I said earlier that God initiated this rescue plan, this plan of redemption by sending his son into the world. And unfortunately, the ugly truth is that in order for God to restore us, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a payment for the sin and the the dysfunction in our lives. And so on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he instituted this thing that we've come to call communion or the Lord's supper. And the bread Jesus taught us represents his body. The cup or the juice represents his shed blood. And so I'm gonna pray here and I'm gonna thank the Lord for his word. And I'm gonna thank him for these elements and what they represent. And then we're gonna sing some more. And uh, anytime during these next couple of songs, as we close out the service, uh, feel free to take communion on your own. But for now, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. God, thank you that we can know truth. In a world that says truth is unknowable, in a world that says truth is all changing, that you can't know for certain, thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself through the scriptures. And Father, I just pray that uh, you would really bless this series. Lord, we know it's different from kind of what we're used to or what we normally would like to do, but God, I pray that that if there's any of us here today, God, there's no reason to feel shame or to feel uh, embarrassment if we're struggling with with certain aspects of the scriptures. I just pray that this series would be a blessing to uh, those in our church, Lord, who maybe are struggling, who maybe have questions when it comes to your word. And I just ask, Father, in your grace, And in your love, would you meet us and would you reveal truth to us? And ultimately, Lord, would you reveal the Lord Jesus to us? I pray that we would fall more in love with him. He is the word become flesh. And Lord, even as we uh, just take the elements here, as we sing and worship you, Lord Jesus, I pray your presence would just increase in this place. And Lord, that we would just know that you're here, that you're real. God, we can can struggle with certain aspects of scripture, Lord, but you're real. Your presence is real. You can fill this room and you can uh, let your manifest presence become known. So we invite you, we worship you, we love you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.
4: for your blood shed for us to redeem us, to bring us home to you, to pay for our sins. We rejoice because of what you've done and we receive the life and the light that comes from living by your spirit. So Father, for anyone here this morning who needs more, more of your spirit, more of your comfort, more of your power as you pour that out on us this morning. And may we use that power to bless your name, to glorify you, and to make this moment a connection between heaven and earth.
3: I almost called you this week to ask you to play that song and we never connected on it. So thank you, Lord. Um, We got to teach Caleb that one uh, so we can keep it in this congregation. Um, Hey, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Again, I know uh, this kind of a message is a little bit different. Maybe you came in here really banged up today and you're like, apologetics, really? Like, I just, I need to meet Jesus. Well, I just want to invite you down. If there's something going on in your life that... particularly hard and maybe you don't even have like the emotional space or the mental space to even think about some of these you know more apologetic type things I just want to invite you down please don't don't miss this opportunity come down for prayer there'll be members of our prayer team down here Um, please come down you can share with them what's going on and and let them pray for you Um, we hope you can join us next week Uh, next week I think the topic is some of the old strange uh, some of the strange Old Testament laws that we come across in places like Leviticus. And so I uh, wanna invite you back. Again, it's a good series to bring maybe friends to who are uh, investigating the Christian faith um, and maybe have some questions. Um, but for now, let's close with a final blessing. It comes out of Second Peter 3. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 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 Go in peace.